Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. There's a lot that could impress you about the all new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. Hello and welcome to Out With Susie Ruffle. This is Series 3, Episode 16. First of all, a huge thank you to everyone that got in touch last week uh, with the brilliant episode with Yasmin. It seemed that loads of you really enjoyed it and I'm really pleased that we finally managed to get someone from the ACE community on the show. I'll endeavour to have more voices from across the LGBTQIA plus spectrum and I am reaching out constantly to lots of different people. So if you felt like last week this podcast finally spoke to you, I'm really happy that it did. And it seemed that many of you felt like that because I received a lot of emails this week and tweets and messages and Instagrams. And Instagrams, is that a thing? I think messages on Instagram is what I meant. And yeah, I'm really, I'm just really delighted that people enjoyed it as much as they did. Uh, as ever, if you want to get in touch, please do. The email is hello at withsusieruffle.com. You can also get in touch with me on all of the socials. And like they say on every single podcast, if you wanted to rate, review and subscribe, that would be very helpful because it helps other people find the podcast and it helps me continue making it. Okay, that's all of the, the admin out the way at the top of the show. I hope that you're well. I hope you're having a good week. My flat is currently hotter than the sun. I'm in my little uh, cupboard and uh, I mean, I, I don't mind telling you, I'm, I might combust. It is very, very warm in here, but I'm not going to complain about the sunshine because it is so nice to see a bit of sun and it's so nice to be able to go to my local park and sit outside and I've had a couple of shandies with my mates in the sun, which has been absolutely dreamy. So um, I hope you've got to enjoy the, uh, the sun and the warm weather in some way as well. As always, we start the podcast with a couple of uh, listener emails, and then we'll get into the interview. This week, it's with Lauren Rolls, who is a brilliant Paralympian, uh, who I just loved, loved, loved talking to. Yeah, I just think she's brilliant. And yeah, I fell in love with her a little bit, as I think you'll hear. She's absolutely great. And uh, I hope that you enjoy that conversation as much as I did. But let's get to the listener emails first. Hi Susie, hope you're well and enjoying our new freedoms. I've been thinking about writing to you for a while but never knew what to say as I'm a straight cis woman so I thought my thoughts and opinions always seem best kept quiet as it isn't my time to shine. However, I wanted to thank you for your podcast and all of your incredible guests. I always consider myself to be an ally but in hindsight, I wasn't the best one. I might add a caveat, I was never rude, judgmental or unkind but perhaps a bit naive. Your podcast has taught me more about empathy and understanding than I realised I needed to know, if that makes sense. I am a much better ally and person as a result. My ex-boyfriend was bisexual, which at the time troubled me. I'm not sure why. I assume an insecurity on my part. However, now thanks to your guests, it wouldn't be something I'd consider as anything other than part of who they are and something to be celebrated. Thank you for making me a better person. I recommended out to a friend recently too. Look forward to seeing you in Lyme Regis this year. Yes, I'm coming to Lyme Regis on tour. I loved your Ferrum show in 2019. It's hard to remember the, what pre-COVID times were like. If you choose to read this out, you're welcome to use my name. Best wishes, Sophie. P.S. Sorry for the waffle. There was no waffle at all, Sophie. It was a great, concise email. Um, thank you very much. I'm so delighted that um, allies listen to this show as well. Um, I really hope that I make something that is interesting to lots of different people and that lots of different people who are interested in stories and people. And of course, in some ways, it's, it's made for the queer community, but it's so made for our allies as well. And sometimes not for our allies, sometimes people that need their opinions 
shaken up a little bit um but obviously that's not you sophie you sound um absolutely brilliant and uh, make sure that you come and say hello to me after after the tour show in lyme regis i'm looking forward to that one you came to the theorem show so i think that'll be a different show yes it should be um <laughs> i mean it will be different because i I'm, i don't really remember what the show was before that um, and that goes for anyone uh, if you're listening and you come along to a tour show please stick around at the end and say hello to me because i would love to meet i've not really met any listeners yet from this podcast so i'd love to say hello to some of you okay Let's go on to another email from our brilliant listeners. Hi Susie, I hope you're well. First of all, I want to thank you for doing this podcast. I actually got into it through Rose and Rosie and after that there was no looking back. I started binging one night while undoing my braids and then it became a nightly occurrence. I love winding down to it at night, although there have been a couple of episodes that are far too funny for winding down. Your guest stories are so enlightening. Growing up, I never really had any interest in boys. I went to a Catholic all-girls school and there was a point when most of my classmates went boy crazy and started saying how they wished they were they were boys at school and I genuinely couldn't care less. And to be honest, I never thought anything about it. And it wasn't like I was crushing on girls either, even though looking back, I may have had a couple of really intense female friendships. I'd never really heard of queered people and I'd never thought about same-sex couples until some girls at my school started saying te amo to each other, which in Spanish is a deeper way of saying I love you. Back in the day, that phrase was especially reserved for partners. So they took them to the school psychologist and I'm not sure what they told them, but I can't imagine it was something positive. So I'm thankful I hadn't started showing my queer tendencies by then. But I do remember thinking the school overreacted. What if they'd loved each other the way the partners do? Fast forward a couple of years and my cousin came out as a lesbian. I was like, cool but it also felt like a taboo subject. So after I started university and developed my first crush on a girl, well, the first I was actually aware of at least, I remember a friend telling me he thought she was cute and I admitted to liking her too. Eventually, most of my friends knew I had a crush on her and I was okay with that. Crushes on girls kept coming. I was both excited and scared, seeing how my family had treated my cousin, so I swore I would never let them know. That was until my sister did an intervention in my second year in uni, so I admitted to liking girls. I did not feel like I was forced to say it, so it was absolutely fine. They did ask me if I was planning on telling our parents, to which I responded, I don't think I ever will. And that was the plan for a long time. I would move to a country where same-sex relationships are recognized, get a girlfriend, and maybe then they would find out. It was not like I was ashamed. That's something I was actually thankful for. Not having been raised to think queer was wrong. People around me probably thought so, but it was a topic that was never mentioned in conversation. And in the long run, I appreciate not realising I was a lesbian until a little bit older, because that way I didn't feel the need to repress my feelings or have any internalised homophobia. At 18, I had the resources and judgement to know it was okay. I did end up coming out, or as Karamo Brown says, letting mum in. I told her I was a lesbian halfway through quarantine. I'm not sure what changed, but I felt this huge weight on my chest and just knew I had to tell her so I could finally breathe. So with the help of my sister, I let her know and made sure she knew I'm proud of who I am and that there was nothing wrong with me and nothing had to be done about it. She had a hard time at first, but she said that she loved me anyway and things haven't really changed between us, although we've never talked about it again. I've been vocal about being queer on social media for years now, except on Facebook, because that's where all the older family members and friends are. But a couple of days ago, I added a pride frame to my profile picture. So if they haven't figured it out by now, it's on them, I guess. I'm done hiding and putting people's feelings and opinions before my own happiness. And that I owe to you and all the amazing members of the LGBTQIA community who are visible and unapologetic in themselves. Thanks again and best wishes for everything that's to come. Sincerely, Stacey. Feel free to use my name if you end up reading out my long-ass email on the pod. Oh, I mean, I'm so flattered and um, and, and delighted that you feel that I, I have helped in some way and maybe this podcast has helped in some way. And it sounds like you've... Um, I mean, it sounds like you've really got your shit together uh, and you sound like you're quite a lot younger than me. So you sound like you, you, you've, you've really, you're really nailing it, Stacey. Um, but I'm, yeah, I'm so pleased that this podcast has felt like that for you. And I hope that you, that you do feel proud. And I'm delighted that you changed your frame on Facebook to a pride one. Good for you. And, I, and I'm pleased you don't feel like you need to move somewhere else now to be happy, unless you really want to. And then of course you should. But I'm sure that you can have all of those things that you dream of here. Or at least I hope you do. I hope you do. Okay, thank you for all the emails. That was just two of so many that I received this week. And I love receiving them. So if you want to get in touch, I know I mentioned the email address earlier, but here it is again. It's hello at outwithsuzyruffle.com. 
um, yeah, I really love receiving them and I really love sharing them on the show. So thank you to those of you that get in touch and share your stories. It really, really means a lot. Okay, let's go to today's conversation. It's, oh, I just loved this conversation so much. It's so interesting. And I'm so excited to support Lauren Rolls in whatever she does next. And I'm so excited. I'd love to go and see her row. Maybe we should all go and see her row, how how brilliant she is. I'd also like to put out a trigger warning at the top of this podcast. Lauren does mention um, feelings of depression and anxiety and trauma. And she also uh, mentions going through a phase where she felt quite suicidal. If you don't feel like you can listen to that today, or maybe you can't listen to that ever, that's totally fine. There's plenty of other um, podcasts from this series that you can listen to. Um, But I just wanted to let you know. Okay, let's go now to this brilliant conversation with a brilliant woman, Lauren Rowles. Ah, listener, I am very excited for today's conversation with British rower Lauren Rowles. At just 22, she is the world European and Paralympic champion. At just 22! She began her career as an elite athlete at just 14 after being inspired by the 2012 Paralympic Games, finding a talent in the wheelchair track racing and soon represented Great Britain at an international level, competing in the Commonwealth Games and the Junior World Championships. Then in 2015, she was scouted by the British rowing team and after just five months of taking her first stroke, she won the silver medal at the Senior World Championships and qualified for the 2016 Paralympic Games in Rio the following year. At just 18, she won gold in Rio and was awarded an MBE in the New Year's Honours list. I'm honoured to have her on the show today. Hello, Lauren. Hi, how are you doing? I'm very excited to be talking to you. Uh, Equally the same. (laughs) After listening to many, many episodes of this podcast, it's an absolute honour to be on here and chatting to you. Oh, thank you. I was saying just before we started recording, I only ever interview people that I'm like genuinely interested in and want to chat to and... um, yeah, I was watching your. I was watching you win in Rio. I was watching it on YouTube before we uh, came on the call, and I found myself getting very emotional, being like, like I knew that you were going to win, obviously, but that is, I mean, that must have been incredible. It's surreal watching it back in terms of just like an outer body experience that you have. Obviously, like I knew what it felt like to be in the boat. Obviously, I was in the boat and living that, so I know what I felt like at each point of that race and for every single stroke of that. And to watch it back, it's like watching somebody else. Honestly, the most insane thing. And I think reflecting back now and whenever anybody asks me anything about what I remember, it's just, I remember the start and taking my first few strokes. I remember nothing of the middle. And then I remember getting to 250 meters and going, when will this end? Because my body was just in so much pain. I remember thinking to myself, I'm never doing this again. Like this is the worst thing I've ever put my body through and I will not do it again. Uh, And then you cross the finish line and that all disappears. All those those negative thoughts, they just go out the window. And cross the finish line, I look over to my left and in kind of like red lights comes up with first, second and third place and Mm -hmm. who's crossed through the finish line and live results. And it came up as one GBR and no joke. And it it was like time completely slowed down. I look kind of back across the field and swing back to kind of straight in front of me. And I see China and France who were second and third come through the line. And it just sunk in at that moment. I was like, we've won the Paralympic Games. Turned to my own partner, Lawrence, who I rode with and obviously won with. And I said, we did it, we're Paralympic champions. That moment, um, I will never forget for the rest of my life. And just to to have that stored in the the memory bank uh, up in my head. And just even now, when I look at the medal, I can still feel things. It's like all your sensations come out and all that sensory level of winning. Do your arms start aching? Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. I, I, I fully remember how I felt going into that race and how nervous. And, and I, I still say to myself, even this day when I go out to race, you know, and when I think about, you know, preparing for Tokyo or going out to Tokyo, I think to myself, yeah. I'm going to hate it just as much. But then hopefully on the other end of that comes another gold medal. So um, it, it's a bit of give and take because I love hate relationship I have with the sport. Into the last couple of hundred metres, it's looking good for Great Britain. They're still about a second and a bit ahead, just about three quarters of a boat length 
maybe. Lauren Rolls at 18, Lawrence Whiteley at the age of 25, trying to steer home a second Paralympic gold medal for Great Britain if they can hold off China's Liu Shang and Fei Jianming. We're coming into the final straight now. There's really nobody else in this. Could this be a second Paralympic gold for Great Britain? At the start of today, if you'd asked any British officials, maybe they'd have said this was the one. This was the gold medal that they expected. Rachel Morris has already surpassed those expectations. Now it's looking as though Lauren Rolls and Lawrence Whiteley will win Paralympic gold. They are the champions. Two gold on the board for Great Britain. China second. It'll be France coming home in third. Anna Marie Phelps, Paralympic gold again. What a fairy tale story that is for them. That's fantastic. That year in Rio for Paralympians, for, for Team GB, like that must have been an incredible moment to be there with that team because they won so many medals. Oh, honestly, what you see in Rio is a product of a culmination of years upon years upon years of work that has somehow in time all aligned where athletes from every sport have he must hit their peak mm. like and you don't get that every paralympic or olympic games i don't think you know you don't get those games where you have that golden hall of medals that we had in rio you just don't get that especially as a rowing team and you know heading in towards tokyo now we have a fantastic team but to to see what the olympic guys did and be the most successful rowing nation on this planet and then for us as a paralympic team to go back that up a couple of weeks later and to win the amount of medals that we did and to, to say that we were the best nation on this this planet the sport that we do but not only that but just in general gb the, the amount of medals that we won in rio that's truly special honestly that doesn't happen every single games you know that might be a product of every other games or every few games because it takes a while for talent to come through like that it takes a while for athletes to be able to build to the level that they were and i think what you saw in rio was a was a, a group of athletes that were so mature experienced the best of the best we have in this country and you were only 18 yeah i mean <laughs> mental it's amazing i remember the first ever time i got onto the, the rowing team and and growing up, I just love sport. Like I've wanted to be an Olympian since I was seven years old. I wrote it in my diary. I was like to my mom, I want to be, be that kid that runs at the Olympics. That's all I ever wanted to do was my dream job. And I remember watching the likes of Paula Radcliffe, uh, Catherine Granger, Kelly Holmes, those incredible female athletes. And I wanted to be just like them. I joined the rowing team in 2015 and I'm rowing next to Catherine Granger in a boat. I'm on the team with her, blew my mind absolutely mm -hmm. blew my mind that I was next to one of my heroes in sport and that she even just from a distance like we had a, several conversations but you know in the time of my career and just before she left uh, and since I've remained in contact with her but just from even from afar her aura and how she was her demeanor everything taught me so much as a young athlete it just blew my mind that my hero was I was on the same team as her uh, and I think as I get a bit older I realize back then obviously how young I was but also just how inexperienced and how much I had to learn yeah. Okay, so let's go all the way back. So you, say you're seven. Were you watching like the Olympics on TV or what, what Olympics would that have been? So I remember kind of the days of Beijing. Too young for Sydney, but I remember Beijing being a big, a big thing. Obviously then London was, was a massive turning point in my life. Huge. A huge part of my life. But yeah, when I was growing up, I literally was the kid that took, um, you know, sports day like it was the Olympic Games. Like I came out of the womb kicking and fighting with a competitive every cell in my body was competitive I was just that kid mm -hmm. um and I wanted to yeah like I say my dream job was to be an Olympian was to be one of these incredible athletes that I saw on TV and uh I'm lucky now that I'm living that job and I'm literally doing my dream job at the age of 22 yeah and I think that uh, you know as I as I went throughout kind of my school years I kind of was one of those uh, kids that did a lot of sports I didn't really refine mm -hmm. down to just doing one thing later kind of on in kind of as I got towards a teenager I started to do track running quite heavily and um, you know probably ended would end up going in that direction of really refining down to that if that's what I wanted to commit to yeah when I was a kid I just was enthusiastic about all sport like sport was my outlet it was my my place where I could let out anything that was going on in my life and I think that 
for me, that was my biggest passion amongst anything. You know, I was really into other things as well, but sport for me was my safe place. It was a place mm. where I was, I was not only good at it, but I just felt like I was safe there and I could be my authentic self. And that was massive for me, I think, as a, as a kid. And then obviously, you know, heading into my teenage years um, was a massive part of my rehabilitation back into, yeah. into, into life and, and turning my life around, really. So would you mind, um, sort of, I don't want to explain what happened to you in like a ham-fisted way. Um, so can you explain what happened when you were 13 and how that sort of changed the direction of your life? Yeah, so I suppose take it back to the 1st of February 2012. I went to school one day, was 13 years old, completely able-bodied, probably hung out with my mates at school that day, larked around a little bit, went home, danced in front of the TV to like Stars TV or whatever was going on at the time. I used to be that kid that just used to dance in their living room all the time. And yeah, went to bed uh, that night and woke up the next morning and I was paralysed from the waist down. Just like that. It completely changed my life um, in, in overnight and um, woke up obviously on the 2nd of February 2012 and didn't really know what had gone on. Mm. Just couldn't feel anything. Couldn't feel anything from kind of like short, shorts length down. Right, okay. Just complete lack of sensation. I could still kind of move my legs at this stage, um, but not like, it was just where your body's just like, what the hell is going on? That must've been terrifying. Yeah. I mean, when you're 13 years old, you go to bed able-bodied one night. I mean- it was more the look of fear on my mom's face. I think that's when it, cause like your mom's always the person that is the stable, calming character over you and is always the person that's there for you to calm you down and tell you everything's okay. And the look and the fear I saw in her eyes that morning, I knew it was bad. Yeah, I kind of swung around from the side of the bed, tried to get up um, and collapsed to the floor. Uh, and obviously at that point we knew there was something seriously wrong and my mom called an ambulance. And obviously then later that day I went it kind of into hospital and had scans done. Uh, and my mom said that she, she kind of knew it was really serious where, and they were doing all the tests on me and stuff and they do these sensation tests where you know they'll test whether you can feel things and they'll say do you, do you feel like this is dull or it's sharp and you hear that so many times when you're going through kind of spinal treatment and, and spinal rehabilitation but they were asking me this thing and I have really ticklish feet and she said they touched your feet and they tickled your feet and it did all these things and she said you didn't even flinch and that was the thing for me she said how I knew it was really serious which mm. is crazy just like that one random thing but she she said like when we were in the hospital, I knew that something was really wrong. Um, they thought I had a, initially had a spinal stroke. Uh, and so I spent all day waiting for surgery. Um, then to find out that I had a rare neurological disease called transverse myelitis, which at the time was very, very, very rare. And it's essentially where your antibodies attack your spinal cord leaving you with the paralysis um, and leaving you with spinal damage and the nerve damage. And that had just happened overnight? Yeah, it just happens overnight. It can be triggered by several things. And so even to this day, it's not really clear on why that happens. And we, they don't actually know why it happened with me. They don't actually know what triggered that in my body. It can be as simple as you've had a common cold and your body goes to fight the cold and instead paths get crossed and your antibodies just fight your spinal cord. It's as simple as that. So then, uh, please stop me. I'm never sure whether, because I don't, we've obviously not met before, if I'm like digging too hard or if there's certain stuff that you don't like talking about, just... No, 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 I'm pretty pretty open with all of it. I suppose I've lived it so many years now, I've told my story so many times. I suppose like it's, it's like telling a story in a way about... Um, about somebody else in some senses, because I was, I was a different person back then as well. I think like I look back where I am now and obviously I, I was that girl and I lived that experience, but it was also such a long time ago. And I think that emotionally you move so far away from that in a strange sense. Yeah. And also like your emotions as a teenager are so, yeah. like for me, they were so at the surface. Yeah. I hear people talking about it on your podcast, but like in terms of when you first came out and, and how that all felt and to where you probably are now is a very different place. It's almost like talking about a different experience. It's kind of like that in a sense of, you know, an another person, another life, it almost feels like. But yet you are that person, which is a very yeah. strange thing that I think as humans we do. We dis disassociate a little bit. Yeah, I've, I've never thought that, but that's a really good way of, of explaining it. So so what happened after that? Did, did you then go into, you must have had months and months and months of rehab, right? Where they were trying to, you know, get you back walking or get you back on your feet somehow. Yeah, so immediately it was just about trying to stabilise my situation because the paralysis was going higher and higher. Um, so they had to try and stop that happening. And, and for me, that meant that I had to go on, actually had to be transferred to Bristol Children's Hospital because 
at, I was at Birmingham Children's Hospital where I, I kind of grew up in Birmingham and I was there at the time and they didn't have space for me. I needed to go onto a dialysis ward. I needed to have some transfusions done and they didn't have space for me there. And so we had to up sticks and I had to go to Bristol and I had to go to the children's hospital there. Uh, and I ha- received a treatment of something called plasmapheresis. And it's basically where they take all of your plasma out of your body and just transfuse it. And your plasma is where your antibodies are stored in your blood. So they're almost like cleaning it in a way. Yes, they literally transfuse it with somebody else's. So right, it's okay, a complete sure, transfusion. Sure. And I had a, a series of that done and that really stabilised my situation. Like that stopped anything from getting any higher um, and it completely kind of flattened out where I was. And then once I was physically stable and they knew my situation wasn't going to get any worse, then I went to Soap Mandeville Spinal Unit, um, which was, uh, you know, home of the Paralympics. And mm. I went there for my, my rehabilitation. And all in all, I think I spent about eight months in hospital slash rehab away from home. So, um, yeah, it was a long period of time where I was away from my mum my stayed with me all this time because obviously I was, I'm still young at this stage. Uh, and she, she used to literally just sleep on sofas, on, um, you know, the chairs in the hospital and stuff like that because... It, when I say that overnight stay for parents is tough in hospitals, mm. I, I've never seen anything like it. And, and, and you know, um, yeah, she stayed with me every single night of those eight months and, and lived with me, I guess. And then I went back home finally and reintroduced back into my new life, I guess, uh, in inverted commas. How long was it after waking up on the 2nd of February to you sort of realising, oh, life is going to be different now. This isn't going to be something where I have this um, paralysis for a, a number of months and then I'm back to that version of myself again how long did it take for you to sort of work out that you you were going to have a a very different life to what you initially thought I think for me I probably didn't figure that out for a good couple of years really even though I kind of knew that life was never going to be the same I always kind of lived with this hope that I think I was so like when you're young and you're a bit naive you just kind of live in this hope that things would get better And I think Mm -hmm. I always just thought to myself, maybe this is just temporary. And in a way, I think that that was my coping mechanism of of kind of getting through it was I always just just thought it was really temporary and that maybe one day I would live a normal life again. And I kind of go back to my old life of doing athletics and running again. And I think that's my only way I got through it was hoping that would be better days. And then I think a few years later, once I started getting into Paralympic sport and really kind of like absorbing what had happened to me and coping with that, yeah, I, I realised that actually this was going to be my new way of life and I needed to adapt around that. So it took a good couple of years. But I, I think, you know, even just a couple of years ago, back in 2017, 2018, I went through a, a, a kind of a trigger warning here, but I went through a really severe time with depression. I was very suicidal for, for a, a while and was in a very dark place in my life. And off the back of that, I have gone through a period where I've had to receive, uh, you know, treatment, psychology treatment and counselling, whatever it may be. And have learned a lot about myself, but also just realised that I never processed that trauma that happened to me. Never processed mm. these things that had happened to me in my life. I kind of just went from one thing to another. Obviously, growing up with a disability in your formative years and that happening to you and having that level of trauma happen to you whilst I was a teenager, whilst hormonal changes were happening, you know, everything that's going on in your life, you kind of don't absorb that. And I think then a a few years ago, it kind of hit me just literally like a ton of bricks and it just hit me all at once. And I realized what had gone on and I realized that this was permanent. This, this, this was my life now. Um, And there was a, there was an element of exception with that, like accepting what had gone on and just accepting that this was going to be my life now. And that was really difficult. I think, you know, even years, years, years down the line, you know, I'm eight years, you know, nine years down the line of of being paralyzed and um, living in a wheelchair day to day. And it's still, it's still a day to day thing of where you, you find new things where you're having to accept that this is your life. I found it quite a lot as well when I was a teenager, like when my friends started going off and we were going out and we were going clubbing or we'd go out to gigs. Like I was massively into music as a kid. Uh, I went to my first my, my first gig at like 11. Um, and then I kind of just grew up going, going to gigs with my mates. And then when I became in a wheelchair and became paralyzed, like I couldn't go to gigs properly anymore. I couldn't mm. be in the center of the mosh pit. You know, I couldn't do all of those things. And then when I started going out and I was going out clubbing with my mates, you know, access is difficult to clubs and a lot of bars and places do not have access. And it really made me angry. Yeah, It made me an angry teenager because it, I had so much hate and resentment towards my own body. Yeah, I had to go through a process of, of overcoming that and letting go of that anger recently. Yeah, but I mean, I think that's totally understandable to be 
I mean, accessibility is so... It's something I know a little bit about because it's something that I always try and do with my comedy shows. I always try and make sure that they're accessible. You know, and it's really difficult when you go to somewhere like the Edinburgh Festival where it's like cobbled streets. It's like an absolute nightmare for anyone that that, that might have a disability or might have some sort of, you know, issue getting up and down stairs or, or whatever else. And, I mean, I'm not surprised it makes you angry. It must be... I mean, certainly at that formative age, I'm just trying to think of like, you know, I was so angry and I had very little to be angry about really but I can I can totally recognize that and I guess like after having eight months being away just being you and your mum then sort of going back to school and like that must have looked very different because I'm now thinking of my school and I'm thinking well I guess a quarter of it was accessible yeah oh I was really lucky at the time um so I started high school literally that year in 2012. So I started um, school, well, it would have been like 2011, I would have started year nine. Um, so I started high school um, and obviously was doing my GCSEs uh, mm-hmm. going kind of in through when I was going in and out of hospital. But I obviously came out of year nine. I missed the whole, sc- I pretty much started year nine, <laughs> missed that whole school year and then re-entered in at year 10. And basically something that was really difficult for me and I only later found this out down the line because my mom eventually told me but when they were on about reintroducing me back into school and what that would look like even though my school was pretty much fully accessible I was really lucky that it was a modern building they said to me no she's got to go to a learning difficulty school she can't be a regular school she she's disabled and my mom said no way she's not got learning difficulty she's just physically disabled she's just in a wheelchair and then they went no she has to go to a, a learning and physical disability school and my mom said no way you know this was going to school with kids that had far greater needs than what I did like I was just in a wheelchair I just needed people to help me out opening the doors yeah you know there was lifts in the building and everything i didn't need any help with my education i was a little bit probably behind because you'd had eight months off yeah exactly who wouldn't be right but i definitely didn't need to be at a facility where somebody else needed that spot yeah you know and and other kids needed to be there and needed that special attention and care at that school and my mom fought tooth and nail to get me back into school and get me back into mainstream school and they fought back hard you know and um actually you know I went back to school finally I went back with my friends but that was a really difficult process for me because nobody saw me in the same way Mm -hmm. nobody treated me like Lauren apart from maybe like a couple of people who um were my really close friends and had been in contact with me and come to see me in the hospital some of my close friends had had kind of been there with me through that time I kind of when I went back everybody saw me as as disabled and I was just Mm -hmm. labeled immediately I was labeled as this poor disabled girl but I'd gone from being kind of like sports captain to this girl who was poor and helpless and, and had to have a teaching assistant that walked around with her all the time. And that was really difficult for me. Being seen as this vulnerable girl just wasn't my persona. It wasn't my character. I like pride myself in, in not necessarily how tough I am, but I just, you know, I've always kind of just cracked on with things and got on with things. And oh, if you, listeners, if you want to know how tough Lauren is, go on her Instagram because what she is pressing on the bench press is fucking incredible <laughs> I'm, I, I do a bit of CrossFit well, I, I'm seriously into CrossFit yeah yeah and so like I'm like oh my god how much can you this is amazing it's, it's very impressive but that's me that's me all over I love to like you know like when I was a kid I was a tomboy yeah you know classic you know secret code word for lesbian yeah um, but like I was a complete tomboy and I just loved hanging out with the lads and I just grew up I suppose really just I was really close to my granddad. Um, we really loved to hang out and just do, do kind of, uh, you know, just physical stuff, I guess. And I was just always grown up like that. And so I was never really like a vulnerable kid in terms of like, I never wanted to really show that side of me. I was the girl that did sport and was very competitive and showed that kind of aggression and, mm-hmm. and was very passionate about things. Um, and... And then to be labelled by other people. Yeah, exactly. And so then for, for me to go back to school and for me to be, you know, for kids to not only bully me for, for being disabled, but also then to be perceived as weak. Did that really happen? Yeah, 100%. You know, teenagers are savage. You know. Yeah, they are. But fucking hell. You know what I mean? Like kids, kids are kids and they speak words and they don't realise what's coming out of their mouth. Sure. This is the problem we, I suppose we have with social media in a way these days. Mm-hmm. Back then it was kind of very, um, very full on, I suppose, for me because it was to my face. It was things I was hearing, you know, on the day to day. And that was really difficult. But gradually as people got to know me more and got to see that I was still Lauren, nothing had changed. Mm-hmm. Then, then that 
that all went away kind of people yeah. just started to really kind of just get used to it just they just looked past it then and you know I was then seen as probably one of the bit of the cooler kids because then I started getting involved in sport and then I started doing really cool stuff like I went to Commonwealth Games at the age of 16 well I was still at school when I was 16 doing my GCSEs mm. so the year I did my GCSEs I was also representing Team England <laughs> so like then I also became popular because I was somebody So, you know, I'm just thinking about sort of that sort of formative time where certainly for some of um, the guests that we've had on the show, that's when your sort of sexuality becomes more apparent. But I'm also thinking of um, my dear friend, Rosie Jones, who has been on the podcast. And and I remember her saying, because she has cerebral palsy, Mm -hmm. her saying, well, I didn't really have room to think about the fact that I was gay because I was disabled. 100%. I I mean, Rosie's incredible, but... 100% 100% agree with that. So I only recently came out about mm. just about a year ago. And that's been a process for me in general and probably something that I've only pr- been able to process in the last few years and really accept that because I spent the middle part of my my kind of childhood literally being disabled and learning to deal with that and then becoming a Paralympian and winning a gold medal. Like I was pretty preoccupied at that stage yeah, and I, sure. I wasn't even out there, you know, like dating in general with anybody... Uh, anyway so I think you know when you would almost kind of start figuring that out and figuring out that what your sexuality is and kind of enjoying those years of being able to be who you want to be I was off doing other things I was off you know rebuilding my life and taking it in another direction and so when I was younger and it's very clear now like I I knew I was I don't really like to put labels on things and this is the thing about me I would say I'm a lesbian, but I necessarily don't like labels. But I think that for me, I knew I was was gay when I was a kid. And I see that now. And I got bullied for that when I was a kid. Like I was the tomboy girl at school that hung out with the boys that played sport. I wore a football uh, kit for the basically two years straight. And I used to have my hair in a low pony just every single day. I was either in uniform or in a football kit. And that was me. The classic lesbian low pony. Exactly. like lesbian low how pony. Did, and I, I asked my mum now, I'm like, how did you not know? And she's like, well, I was just a fool, clearly. <laughs> but um, no, I, I was that classic lesbian girl um, that was the tomboy at school. Mm-hmm. And I got bullied for that. And I think that's partly why I never really kind of accepted it. Internalised homophobia is so strong. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that I kind of suppressed that because it wasn't the norm thing to do. It was the norm thing to chat about boys and to kiss boys and I just didn't I didn't relate to that at all I didn't relate in any way when I was a kid to any of that 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 this kind of girl friendship group and what they all had in common and dating boys I just didn't I wanted to be out playing sport with the boys not Mm. dating them yeah I guess then for the midsection of my life like you say I was so preoccupied with everything else and then when I started getting back into dating again and that was all a bit rough because I had so many self-confidence issues like being in a wheelchair left left me with huge self-confidence issues you know I didn't really know how to date and um I I think for me the place where I felt most comfortable was dating other guys um you know guys that had disabilities and so I I kind of dated people that were a lot like me were on my wavelength um and guys that I just enjoyed hanging around with and were my mates Mm. and I think that that was the easiest thing for me at the time you know I could continue looking straight and dating because then the pressures of dating came on me as I got a little bit older and people were like oh have you got a boyfriend when you go around to your nan's house and they'd be like, oh, you got a boyfriend? I, I think it was just, you know, it, it was an easy way of me just saying, you know, hanging out with a boy that I really like to spend time with. And that was the simplest thing for me, I guess. But yeah, definitely in that mid part of my life, I just had nothing on my mind other than rebuilding it and then getting him back involved with sport. And so I, th- I read in an article that about, about how important the 2012 Paralympic Games were to you. And is, is it right that your mum took you? Yeah. Your mum sounds like an absolute legend. My mum is a badass. Um, <laughs> yeah, she will love that she's getting so many shout outs on this podcast. But my mum is an absolute badass. To give you a bit of background, when I was a kid, uh, my kind of I never had a relationship with my dad. And my mum has just been there for me throughout. Grew up, um, she had me when she was 20. And so we're really close in age as well. And she always felt like my best friend more than she did my mum. And it's just the most awesome person to ever walk this planet. But I, yeah, kind of in 2012, she obviously knew I wanted to be an Olympian when I was a kid. And she obviously massively pushed me into doing sport. And she would 
you know, literally take me anywhere to do sport. And really encouraged that, even though she has no athletic bone in her body, doesn't like sport at all. She knew that I had a massive passion for it. And 2012 was obviously, I was in hospital at Stoke Mandeville at the time. And obviously with the Paralympic Games coming up, that was a huge thing at Stoke Mandeville because it is the birthplace of the Paralympics. Right, and so is that where, sorry, just just to understand it, would Paralympians come there for physio? Were you seeing Paralympians or was it just that you knew that that was a place where it was sort of born? Uh, Yeah, I suppose there will be people in the Paralympic team that do receive treatment from Stoke and and have have received their treatment in Stoke, but they wouldn't regularly be there. Okay. With rehabilitation, it kind of works that you have your immediate rehabilitation and then um, you kind of go home and then start living your life. And you are, you know, you, you can go into outpatients and receive kind of support there, but it's generally a very intense rehab period that you go through for you know, anywhere from a couple of months to several years, sometimes with people, mm-hmm. uh, depending on how long they're there for. And then you go on and you live your life. Mm-hmm. It's to set you up for the real world and just basically get to a point where you have a level of mobility, the max level of mobility you're, you're going to get, and then you get pushed out back into the world. Sure. But obviously, you know, London was a, was a massive thing, obviously with it being a home games, but also the Paralympics being born at Stoke Mandeville. Obviously, there was a massive buzz around the games and going. Now, I grew up in Birmingham, on the outskirts of Birmingham, had never even known anybody with a disability, pretty much. So I grew up not knowing what disabled sport was. I knew one guy on the television, and that was Adia Depatan, obviously, who we all know now. But I knew him as the guy in the wheelchair that used to dance in his wheelchair basketball chair in the BBC adverts. When my mum said to me, do you want to go to the Paralympic Games? I'm thinking, what does that entail? Like, I had yeah. no clue in my mind what we were thinking of. What is it, like four people? How many? Like, yeah, how exactly. Like-, like, what are we talking here? And she took me there, and it was my first ever time back in London since being in a wheelchair. I had massive social anxiety issues at this stage because I was, uh, you know, just getting used to my life in a wheelchair. Could barely push myself. And my mum was like, no, right, we're going into London. And in we go um, from Stoke and first trip out. And I remember pushing into the park that day, and my eyes just beamed, just like lit up. I remember seeing all these people with disabilities. And I, said, I remember thinking at the time, my mum was a minority because she was the one walking and standing and I just felt so at home I just couldn't believe how normal I felt and it was just so nice to be out and about but to be in a space full of people where there wasn't people staring at you there wasn't people like looking the other way and you know gazing at you and gawping at you it was so nice just for people to go about their business and for you to feel like you belong somewhere and I went to watch so many sports uh, and the time I went to London um we watched like kind of um swimming wheelchair rugby football blind football so many different sports honestly when i say it changed my life it was a pivotal day and i will never ever forget the feeling that i got from watching the kind of the athletes compete that day and i pushed out the pot that day and i said to my mom this is what i want to do i want to go to the paralympics and i was just motivated it was like i just completely my brain had just switched back on again it was like i found lauren again for the very first time in about a year And it was the next Olympics you were there. Yeah, four years later, (laughs) and I'm on that start line. So obviously a lot had happened in between those four years. Of course, yeah. But yeah, London for me was a massive turning point. It made me, it opened my eyes to what Paralympic sport was and how competitive it was. It wasn't just people that had disabilities that were just participating in a bit of sport. It was competitive athletes doing sport and I had total admiration for these athletes and I was inspired when they say inspire a generation and that was the slogan of London it inspired a generation and it inspired me and uh, I kind of we got just stuck into it and we tried to find a I suppose an athletics club immediately because I used to do track running so we thought you know what we'll go back to doing um we'll go back to the track and I'll do wheelchair racing and so my mum searched high and low for a wheelchair racing club and in the November of 2012 I did my first ever track session in a racing chair. After that first session were you like this is it? Yeah it was a cold November Sunday morning and I sat in that track chair for the very first time and I started pushing around the 400 meter track and I was going so slow like. Are the track chairs just to ask just so I can have like a picture in my mind are they the ones that have do they have a wheel at the front as well? Yeah so they're like three wheels and you almost like punch the hand rim to, to push it round um, so yeah it, it's kind of like, it is essentially trying to mimic running for people in wheelchairs in, in a right. kind of way but you're going at like 20 miles an hour so it's quite fast um, but I loved it and had you sat in one of those chairs before? no not at all right I'd never sat in a racing chair before so getting into it was was one thing uh, and then just like learning the movement it wasn't like pushing your day chair because you, you kind of grip 
grip your hands and you try and grip to a, a day chair in a racing chair like I say you have gloves on so you have mm-hmm. these kind of gloves on and you, you, the idea is that you should push like punch the rim the push rim and you you kind of punch and flick it round there's a, there's a real technique to it all a very technical sport but I yeah had no idea what I was doing I just kind of gave it the best bash I could at it like anything I just go into it wholeheartedly and just gave it my all and I loved it I absolutely loved it and just you you know, it went from, I started training with the guys at, at Coventry um, a couple of times every few weeks. And then it turned into a couple of times a week. And then a couple of times a week turned into a couple of times a day. And I, before I knew it, I was fully immersed in this athlete lifestyle. And um, I found a real talent in it, I suppose. And I was young, you know, was, was relatively new at my disability. And sport was almost used as my rehabilitation tool. It gave me so much more mobility back than I had when I went into it. One thing that's really interesting about spinal injuries is, that especially if you did sport prior to having a spinal injury, is that you have so much muscle memory and your brain can rewire your nerves somehow over a period of time if you keep doing repetitive actions. And they think that a lot of where I gained a lot of my mobility back from is actually from sport. I started getting back into swimming and all the things that I used to do when I was a kid. And it was like my brain remembered how to do those things. And slowly but surely my, my, my nerves started to reconnect. Yeah, it gave me so much back and it just made me independent. Like when we talk about the time in 2012, I went back home. My home was inaccessible. I lived on the ground floor in my grandparents' living room uh, and in their in their bedroom. And we kind of got the house redone. But my mum was also my full-time carer. I couldn't transfer out my chair on my own. I couldn't bathe myself. I couldn't clothe myself. I couldn't barely do anything for myself. So you're like at 13 at this point, 13, 14. Um, yeah, 14 at this point in 2012 and so then a couple of years later I'm completely independent have got my life I'm okay I'm in a wheelchair but I can do everything on my own I'm going back to school I don't need a teaching assistant that follows me around like this is what sport had given me it not only Mm. given me that kind of passion and zest for life again but it had given me independence and I saw that and I was like I want to chase that I want to chase being physically the best person I can be and I think it really opened my eyes to the fact that I didn't have to be as disabled as what I left the hospital. I could be stronger and I could be fitter and it would help me in my day-to-day life. You know, I'm sure it didn't feel like a short time when you were going through the training and pushing your body to like new limits. But you know, in a relatively short time, then you're at Rio, you win gold, then you've, and then, I mean, as we came on the call, I said, I mean, I need to congratulate you because last week you won the European Championships. Yeah, it seems crazy. First ever U- European title. Um, so yeah, I hold all three titles now, which has been my dream in my career for so long to hold World Paralympic and European. And to sit there and say that, and I had to kind of have, have a bit of reflection kind of when I came back from Italy and, and like, uh, obviously I've been back in training. I was back in training the next day when we came back. But I just had to sit and reflect for a minute back on the plane and was just like how far I've come since eight Mm. years, eight years ago, you know, nine years ago now. Well, um, but yeah, even where I've come in the last five years, even in the last year, this time last year, I was a completely different person to what I am now. And I think that, uh, you know, as every year goes on, I, I grow towards the kid that I wanted to be when I was little. And I wanted to be this incredible Olympian and I want to, you know, now where where I sit is I want to inspire the kids to take up sport and change their lives through sport, but also to live authentically. And I think that that in the last couple of years, obviously, I've come out as as being gay um, and as something recently I've only started talking about and being public with you know and, it, and I remember when I, I, posted my, I posted my first photo with my girlfriend Jude um, who's also a, an athlete is a wheelchair basketball player and she's a Paralympian as well and when we first posted our photo together everyone went crazy about it because they were like we didn't realise you were even gay uh, and it's something I suppose I've kept behind closed doors for a, a long time because I've never lived authentically as myself because I've been dealing with so many things going on in my life but also just never been in a place to do that and I think yeah I think I realised with the help of Jude as well, she does a lot of advocacy work, especially in the community, in the in the LGBTQ community. She encouraged me and she said, like, if you want to, you know, visibility is, is a lot to do with in terms of when I was growing up, if I'd had visibility of seeing disabilities, seeing people with disabilities, seeing gay people, you know, I would have accepted that so much earlier on in my life than I than I did. And I would have had a lot of easier time in my life growing up if someone had told me I'm gay or I'm disabled and it's okay. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's taken me a long time to realize that I, I, I want to step up and be that person for young kids. Uh, and I suppose that's the mission I'm on right now is about, it's about building a legacy, not only within the sport that I do, but it's about getting kids involved, whether it's through sport or whether it's just living their authentic life. Um, and that's like my biggest passion of all is taking seven-year-old Lauren and guiding her through that process. And, and I want to do that for the kids now of that don't need to be fearful in this day and age about about stuff and to live authentically is the best thing you can do in your life it will make you the happiest you've ever been whatever that looks like and I know that even I'm going through that process even you know I'm gonna be 23 on Saturday but I'm still going through that process myself of just being being my my best version of myself and um I think it's taken me a long time to get to that point but I would have loved to have done that earlier on in my life. And I feel like I've lost time not being that version of myself. So I feel like I have to kind of play catch up, but also just talk about my experiences. I think that's really powerful. You know, I try and talk about my experiences with mental health, you know, my disability coming out, whatever it may be, because these are all struggles that we all face, no matter who you are. And I think that, um, you know, I, I hope in, in talking about my story and, and what I try and do now is is just be be honest with how things were, because I think, you know, in this day and age that we live in, obviously there's there's the, the norms of society and, and how that all works. And I think that I was so kind of imprisoned by the norms for so long that it, it stopped me from living. And we live in a day and age where you don't have to live by the norms anymore. You don't have to be afraid and um, I want to help kind of kids realise that, that they don't have to be afraid just because things have happened in the past or, you know, there are still things obviously going on and homophobia is still real and oh, there's a whole bunch of issues going on in the world today. But, you know, hopefully uh, kids can grow up a lot easier than what you or I did. Uh, and that's hopefully, you know, what we can do, especially through stuff like your podcast as well. Well, mate, I think... I mean, I don't know whether people like to be called inspirational because I know some people are like, oh, I hate that word. But I just, I could talk to you for hours. I'm just, I just, I just think you're fucking brilliant. (laughs) Um, Did you come out sort of during lockdown? Um, yeah, so I kind of, um, I suppose as this was all going on this time last year almost. Yeah, I think, so I, I kind of had a, a long relationship with a guy um, for about three years, four years. And just after we came back from the games, uh, yeah, I went out with this guy and, and, and you know, was was great. And, you know, spent a large part of my, obviously my kind of, then I thought I was going to end up with this guy and marrying this guy. And... Yeah, I kind of, that relationship ended and it you know, didn't end quite great. And I think when I was in that relationship, I, I definitely started to realise at that point that I knew I was gay. And it caused me a lot of issues within my relationship, just in terms of, you know, whether it's to do with intimacy and stuff like that. It's it's caused me a lot of issues with that. And then I think it caused me the biggest issues with identifying myself and who I was and starting to go, you know, accepting these things about yourself. I grew up in a, in a Christian family, in a religious family, and obviously growing up being gay wasn't an option and and Mm -hmm. that was really difficult and I think even just in society when I grew up you know being gay wasn't it wasn't something that was reflected on well I think that that was um obviously challenging for me and I grew up with definitely internalized homophobia of being like no it's not an option Uh, and I suppressed that even you know for the last few years and then realized hold on a minute wait a minute I'm not living authentically and actually it was leading to I kind of unraveled it in a series of counseling that I was having uh, and psychology sessions that I was having of that actually I was dealing with so much anxiety and a lot of my depression was coming from the fact that I wasn't living authentically. Mm. And actually I needed to let it off of my chest and be who I am, be happy. That was the most important thing for me. I got to a point in my life where I was like, I am 18 years old, have won the Paralympic Games I'm living my dream job. I was at university. Like everything in my life was right. You know, I was financially stable. I was living away from home. Everything I had was better than any of my peers had. But yet mm. I was so unhappy. And that was because I wasn't living the best version of myself. And I wasn't living authentically. And so then I, I kind of, yeah, came out. Um, and not long after I kind of uh, came out, then then met my, my girlfriend Jude. Uh, and yeah, I've been with her for nearly a year now, which is madness. And so are you training together in lockdown now? Yeah, so kind of how we started to meet is we we both love CrossFit, uh, absolutely addicted to CrossFit. And um, even though we're both athletes uh, from two different sports and neither of us compete in CrossFit, 
I, yeah, we started doing some CrossFit workouts during the lockdown over Zoom together. And we were like, we challenged each other to a few workouts. And it was just something really, with the games being postponed and everything that had gone on, we just needed something else. We needed to train in another way. I mean, it must be heartbreaking for the games to have been postponed because, I mean, it's four years leading up to it, you know, getting ready. There's a whole process in itself. Lockdown Yeah, was... like for your mental health, that must have been... Yeah. I mean, when you work to, towards something in your goal set, like all athletes are time have got a time-bound goal. Mm-hmm. You know that every four years is going to be an Olympic Games. So then be told that the goalposts are moved and you've got an extra year your mental just goes out the window you you mm-hmm. you're not it's really difficult as athletes we love you know regiment we love being told what to do you know we are athletes just driven by rules and we like to stick to those things we're complete creatures of habit so then mm-hmm. like you know be, to be told that hold on a minute you're going into lockdown oh and then the games are going to be postponed and the uncertainty around that plays with your mental so much um Mm. and so I kind of transformed the lockdown into we'll just find my kind of passion for sport again like take it away from the job a little bit obviously I needed to continue training but kind of take it away from you know always being so focused day in day out and let myself just relax a little bit I knew I needed to kind of let the pressure off to then ramp back into this year so I think that what I tried to do was try to bring a bit of fun back into things. And I created mm-hmm. kind of a communities of people within sport, whether it was me and Jude doing CrossFit, I created a community, a WhatsApp group where we call ourselves the Para Queens, but it was, it was basically like 15 different women, Paralympic uh, athletes um, from seven different sports, I think it was. And we were all training together over Zoom, uh, just doing our sessions together. And then we had a separate community going on and it was my rowing team. And we were doing ergo sessions um, over Zoom with one another. And that was the core group of us obviously training together as a Paralympic team. But then we invited people in that were from other sports. So we had guys from wheelchair rugby, swimming, some of the girls that were on this call. And they had all learned to erg um, indoor row for people that don't know what erging is. Yeah. But indoor row during the lockdown, because a lot of people had indoor rowers, had concept mm-hmm. twos just you know hanging around in their houses or they've been able to borrow something off somebody they adapted the ergos and made them, you know, specific to their disabilities. And then they started getting involved in our sessions. And so we made these kind of communities of people that just were training together, but just loved doing the sport. And camaraderie, I guess. Yeah, it's just incredible. Just, you know, the main reason why I love sport is the community. We all love to be part of a community and sport for me is the place where I feel most at home. And so to have, you know, these groups of people, these incredible women that I was training with and that motivated me throughout a really difficult period. You know, there'd be mornings where I'd literally roll out of bed and be still eating my breakfast on the call. And they'd be like, Lauren, hurry up and get on the ergo. Like we need to start the session or we'd be lifting together to have that level of, you know, like you say, inspiration, but just motivation, like in front of you from other people is the biggest source of motivation I needed to get throughout the lockdown and to have community there was the only thing that got me through. You know, I wouldn't have been able to train twice a day from my house, from my literal living room. Uh, and I wouldn't be sat here today as European champion without every single one of those people training with me on Zoom every single day. That's amazing. That's awesome. And do you feel now like you're, because of coming out quite recently and certainly it being a public thing quite recently, because I don't know, I, I'm sorry that I don't know this, but it, it doesn't seem like there's loads of out athletes. There's some, but there's not loads. Yeah, I think, you know, there's, there's some athletes obviously that are out you know obviously massive icons like tom daly um and, and people like that that have have been out that um you know have, have led the way for many of us and have been bold enough and brave enough to be out there and i think it's really i, I know within rowing a lot of people ask me well have you faced you know um were you scared to come out or you know has anybody said anything to you that's been negative and honestly no there's not many athletes there's about probably four of us that are out and gay within the rowing team but it's just not something that's really cared about and I'm really really lucky to be in a sport where it's not considered to be an issue and in and I can't speak for every sport because all sports are different and I know that in sports like football and stuff it's a huge 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 issue but I think that, um, you know, generally in rowing, I'm really lucky, really, really lucky. And um, I think that's why when I came out to my teammates and stuff, I didn't really see it as that much of a, a big thing because I knew that they would be okay with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it, it didn't change my job. It didn't change what I did in my job. It didn't change my relationships with those people. 
Uh, I think it was coming out to my family and my friends that was the hardest thing because I didn't want to lose people. I didn't want to lose people out of my life that didn't agree with the way I wanted to live mine. And I think that's what I was most scared about. But yeah, in, in sport, you know, it is seen as a big thing. And I think for a while after, the reason why I probably also didn't want to come out is because I, I am seen publicly and though I'm not in any way uh, <laughs> any kind of almost like celebrity or public figure in a sense, but like uh, I do have like young kids that follow me I do have brands that follow me um you know I am seen in the public eye uh, as being an athlete and obviously you know on my social media and stuff you know I I do you know I'm out there putting out what I want to put out there in terms of how I represent my life but just you know I never really kind of let anybody know who I was it's always about Lauren the athlete and that's what I try and show on social media is because people follow me because I'm the athlete and then I started to realize more and more and I started I, I mentor quite a few young girls and stuff and they started saying well Lauren you're you're gay as well and they were like and like we don't know that on social media you were like why don't you tell people about that and I was like started thinking about it and I was like yeah and then I started having more conversations with Jude and and Jude was she does a lot of work um for the community and stuff and is really out and proud about that and I said to her my biggest problem with coming out is that people label you and then when you're an athlete as well brands and media only want to work with you because then you are gay and it's seen as a selling point so not only are you a female not only are you disabled but you're also gay now what a selling point and that was my biggest fear I think that was my biggest fear in coming out publicly and doing anything in the community. And that is so stupid when you think back on it. But I didn't want to be labelled and I didn't want to be seen as a selling thing. I didn't want to be sold as that. I don't think it's stupid. I think that it's coming back to that thing of like you wanting, like thinking about that sort of seven-year-old Lauren, that you don't want all these labels on you. You just want to be you. I just wanted people to invest in me and work with me because of who I was or my career or what I'd work mm. for, not work with me because I tick boxes. Yeah, totally, totally agree. Even still today in the society that we live in, we tick boxes and we, you know, the, the, there's still an element of that going on in, in society today because you are different and you are, you don't conform to the, the norms. But I still, yeah, I'm very careful who I work with and I'm, I, I truly am only invested and work with people that I know are, are genuinely interested in me as a person and aren't just gonna use me as some kind of marketing or some selling tool. And I'm really strong in believing about about that, and, but also working with people to change their perceptions on things. I'm really big mm. on that. And also working with people, you might necessarily not, or having conversations with people who um, you feel are that way because you can change their mind on things and you can alter that and, and steer that. And I've realized that I've been an athlete. I do have a voice and I do have a lot to say. And I, I am a very strongly opinionated person as well. But um, I, I like to kind of, change people's perceptions and exactly why I do sport exactly why I put the content I do out on social media of me lifting big weights is because I want to change perception around women lifting weights it's a massive yeah. thing I want to do and, and body confidence and stuff when I was growing up and um became an elite athlete it was a massive part of of my self-confidence issues is the way people perceive women with muscles uh, and now like I want to change things like that and I think that, uh, yeah, I just like to break the mold a little bit, but I like to do it authentically and I like to work with people who want to achieve that as well. Absolutely. And so now everything's gearing towards Tokyo. Yeah, everything. It's crazy to think. We're, we're nearly we're nearly 100 days uh, to go, which is so, so scary. Can you tell me what your week looks like? How does it look training? Like, are you really careful about what you're eating? Are you, what's it like? So what my usual week would look like, um, especially now we're heading into competition season, uh, I train two to three times a day, depending on what day it is. Um, so generally kind of get up uh, in the morning at seven, I'll head down kind of to train. I'll be at the lake for eight. Um, and then we start training on the water uh, kind of half eight-ish. Um, and that can alter depending on what day it is. Every morning we'll do an aerobic session in the morning. So whether that's on the indoor rowers and it'll be like an hour to 90 minutes. Um, and then, yeah, it's kind of out rowing in the morning um, or on the ergos. You have second breakfast, uh, <laughs> perks of the job. You get a second breakfast <laughs> and then kind of do our second session. And that will either be another aerobic session uh, where it may be more speed work depending on what you know you're doing at the time what your focus is whether we're going into competition or maybe it's another long session again and then we'll have lunch and then we'll go and lift weights which is my favorite part of the day is lifting weights picking things up and putting them down there's just simple pleasures in that um but yeah and then and then we kind of go home for the day 
And that's what my day generally looks like um, at training. I'm training, you know, 25 hours a week probably at the moment. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's intense. Will that build up as you get closer as the 100 days? Yeah, so definitely you spend... You don't spend as much time doing volume of work, but it comes down to quality. But you're, you spend longer at training because you're spending time analysing things and you're spending more time on the water trying to perfect things. Mm-hmm. So um, in the winter, it's all about building that aerobic capacity and that mileage up, building your body's tolerance. It's about getting strong. You know, rowing's a power endurance sport. So it's mm-hmm. really key for us to not only have that kind of, you know, aerobic base and that engine, but it's also really important for us to be strong and be able mm-hmm. to tolerate, you know, a thousand strokes a week or whatever you're going to do so yeah and then it kind of as you go throughout the year I suppose you spend more time at training generally um, but we'll also spend a lot of time out of the country training uh, and away and I think that's what's been the weirdest part of lockdown is that I've spent more time in the UK than I this, this year or the last couple of years than I have in probably the last eight yeah <laughs> because I've been doing high performance sport for so long it involves a lot of traveling and just being away uh, and it was honestly the most bizarre thing when I was told to be at home all the time and I could you know actually have time to spend with my family but yeah that, that's been a real blessing of lockdown is just being able to be in the UK and be planted for a little bit it's, it's given me a lot of uh, family time that I needed just to you know obviously we haven't been to physically really be able to spend time with family but just have the time time mm-hmm. to spend it's it's been nice to have that kind of you know, time given back to you because your your life is rowing. You live and you breathe. Yeah, it. I can imagine these, these Olympic medals. You know, you live and you breathe them, um, and it takes a lifetime commitment to make sure you get one. Um, and then, yeah, I suppose after Tokyo, it's kind of letting my foot off the gas a bit and looking back, and I suppose looking back and uh, smelling the roses a little bit. Hopefully, yeah, absolutely. I can't wait to be screaming for you from London when you're in Tokyo. I can't wait. Um, the way that we always end the podcast is um, you've. I feel like this whole conversation, I feel like people will have been uh, inspired and just sort of uplifted by so much of it and your sort of outlook is so brilliant and uh, and sort of your honesty with, you know, the, the, the journey that you've been on and, and the harder bits uh, alongside the, the sort of more positive stuff. Uh, you speak about it with, um, I mean, with, with uh, a lot wiser than your years put it like that um but if you had to give advice to maybe that version of yourself on you know maybe not the 2nd of february uh 2012 but maybe you know the 10th or or someone that's listening that maybe they're not in quite the the same position but they've they're sort of having to look at their life in a slightly different way than how they envisaged um if you had to give them some advice what would you say realize that your life is on a different path to everybody else's don't sit there and compare don't sit there and look what everybody else is doing and think that you are different and that your life is going to be very different sit there and know that you're on a different path to everybody else because i've realized in the last few years that you know even just down to my peers graduated and i left university a few years ago um and i decided to step back and i never did the whole graduating from university and i was gutted at the time but i realized that i'd also won a paralympic gold medal i was a world champion and now i'm a european champion and I think, yeah, just live authentically as well. You like go on the path that you want to go on and just continuously work hard. Like you have got so much fire in your belly, even when you're down and depressed and don't really know where to go in life. There's something in you, like there's a fire in your belly and and go out there and show people that. Oh, that was brilliant. I absolutely love that, Lauren. That was fucking great. Thanks for having me on. Oh my God, it's my absolute pleasure. I just can't wait to watch you. I want to come, I want to <laughs> be able to come and see you. I, I can't wait for people to watch us and finally for it to happen. I think it will hope, I hope it generates a bit of like community spirit in a sense. Like it just brings people together yeah. a little bit. I, 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 I hope so. I really hope so. But yeah, I, yeah, I'll be fucking cheering for you, mate. Jeez, South East London. You might, I'm so loud, you might even hear me. <laughs> all, all the way from Japan, yeah. I loved that conversation with Lauren. I really hope you did too. Uh, please feel free to rate and review or leave us a message on the iTunes app. And I'll be back with you next week for another brilliant conversation. I hope you have a great week. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.